What is the greatest heartache that you have ever experienced? What is the deepest disappointment that you have ever faced? What do you see as the most debilitating weakness? Your most discouraging deficiency? If we could pile together all of our painful experiences and weaknesses into a huge pile here today, that pile would be dwarfed by one mountainous, heart-wrenching deficiency that we all face, but perhaps too seldom consider. Eden Baptist Church, the root of all emptiness, the root of our greatest heartache, the deepest disappointment, the most debilitating weakness we will ever know is that we do not know God for who He really is. In no way do I mean to dismiss the pain of the trials or the bitterness of the disappointments that any one of us has faced in this life. I don't say this lightly. But I mean to say that there is nothing more determinative about who you are than who you believe God to be. You think what you think and believe what you trust you act as you do, you esteem what you prize, you love what you adore, and you suffer the way that you suffer because of who you perceive Jesus Christ to be. And thus the greatest source of all heartache, trial, disappointment, and deficiency in this life is our deficient view of who God is and how God works in this world. Indeed, every one of us is gathered here today on some level with a deficient view of God. The series of sermons that we begin today is not going to eliminate that deficiency, certainly. We will be working on this project for the rest of our lives. But in an earnest effort to redefine our understanding of God to refine that understanding in some cases, I draw your attention today to the doctrine of divine providence. This biblical doctrine may be an old friend for some of you. It will be like you've opened the hood of your car and we're just going to tune the engine. It's going to keep you going along the road of faith and stabilize you once again in your journey with God. There's others who may be with us today, and if you're part of this series and maybe even this sermon today, this is going to be a complete overhaul. The whole engine's going to have to be renewed and repaired. In any event, we enter on a topic that will have far-reaching implications for your relationship with God and your interpretation of life. This is at the core of who we are and how we live in this world. As we think on this doctrine of divine providence, as I said, for some this will be a familiar friend. For others, you could not for your life define it. You would have no idea how to define divine providence. Divine, you probably have an idea there that pertains to God. Providence, not really sure. I've heard about it. It's a city as far as I know. But I don't really know what that means, providence. Let's consider the importance of this doctrine, before we get to that meaning, to just let, let me say a few more words as I draw from the ideas of others that before we even interpret it and understand it, we must discern that it is a vital doctrine. 
Theologian Bruce Ware has said, As goes the doctrine of divine providence, so go the vast portions of our entire doctrine of God, and with it our conception of God's glory. To get the doctrine of providence wrong is to create a thousand related problems, both theological and practical. We give him his point, and I think we should. Perhaps the doctrine of providence is at the heart of much that is wrong in our lives. Said a bit more simply, theologian Millard Erickson claims that the doctrine of providence is central to the conduct of the Christian life. John Calvin, one of the most gifted theologians in history, said in all earnestness, ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. Come on, the ultimate of all miseries? Please, this has got to be another clueless theologian who's all excited about some esoteric doctrine that really doesn't know about the pain and the suffering and the difficulties of life. And so he says, this is the greatest of all miseries. To the contrary, Calvin was not speaking glibly. He was writing at this time in defense of the evangelical faith for which his own friends and countrymen in France were dying. They were being burned at the stake. He escaped from France and believed that what he could do is write. He could not go in and rescue, but he could write. And he says in that context, ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. It was with the roar of the executioner's pyre reflecting off his mind's eye. It was with the stench of burning martyr flesh filling the air of his imagination. It was with the cries of evangelical widows and orphans echoing through the halls of his spirit, individuals to whom he was ministering, that John Calvin says, ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. Eden Baptist Church, the providence of God is a doctrine we must understand for the good of our souls, for the glory of God. And I would venture to say that every one of us has a sense of the providence of God. We may not be able to define it, but you have a sense of it and you interpret it properly or improperly. But I, would, I would say particularly to you who say, I could never define that word if I had to. I don't even know what it is. If these men of esteem are right, you're missing a major piece in your walk with God. In knowing who He is and living in response to Him. We need this truth. So, let's go to definition the word providence you'll not find in the Bible. Providence does not come in the Hebrew or in the Greek to us, but actually comes from the Latin. Now, this is something that's true of any number of words. It doesn't mean that it has to be found in the Bible to speak about an idea. The, the word trinity is not found in the Bible. We hold that doctrine to be true and dear. The word rapture is not found in the Bible. The word providence is not found in the Bible as such. It's really a Latin word, providentia, which means foresight, or in its verbal form, providere, means see beforehand or see ahead. 
Now, it's dangerous here in our English because it does not mean that God merely has the ability to foresee the future. But it speaks about acting wisely and skillfully in management with a view to the future. But really, beyond this etymology, this study of the Word itself, theologians press the Word much farther. And we do this in many areas. Think of the word church. The word simply means assembly in the Greek language. It was used that way of any number of assemblies. But God's people took the word church to speak of the assembly, the gathering of all God's people together and of those in local churches. So we, we, we gave to the word church a much bolder meaning than the word would itself sustain in the original language. And so with the Latin word providence, from which we derive the word providence, we give it more of a meaning than is sustained simply by the Latin. When applied to God, the word providence speaks, first of all, of His never-ceasing work. Number two, by which He as Creator and Sustainer preserves in existence all creation according to its original design. Third, and with absolute sovereign rule governs its every moment, free act, and circumstance to the purpose for which He brought the universe into being for the glory of His name and the ultimate good of His people. Today we have time to look only at the first half of this definition. The unceasing work of God to preserve the universe. But as God gives us opportunity and as we continue to work through this theme together over the weeks ahead, we will find opportunity to delve into some of these trying and difficult ideas. But they are at the very heart of who we are and who we know God to be. Before we move into the area of the preservation of God, let me just clarify, first of all, that broadly speaking, God's providence has to do with His continuing influence in this world. What is the nature of God's influence in this world? What is the extent of His influence in this world? No Bible believer thinks that God simply wound the world up like a clock and went away on vacation. This was the basic idea of deism. A great powerful Creator God. But once He made the world, He went away. He lets the world operate the way that it is and has nothing to do with it. No Bible believer would say that. If we asked for a series of examples, we could quickly come up with ideas from the Bible that show that God has a continuing influence upon His world. We could point to miracles. God splits the Red Sea. We could point to the times when God speaks. We could point to theophanies such as with Abraham as God comes in human form to speak to a man. We could speak of dreams and visions. We could speak of the written text of Scripture. Remember how Peter described that the Holy Spirit carried men along to write what God wanted them to write. God is obviously continuing in His influence in this world. And ultimately, where would we point? To Jesus Christ. After God created, He did not run away. He sent His Son in flesh to earth to bring salvation to His people. But what about our everyday lives? 
I mean, it's one thing to say that God is obviously operative in this world. There's miracles. There's Jesus Christ. But what about our everyday life? To what extent does God continue to exert influence upon daily life? How does God's influence relate to the free will of man? Does God adjust His will to the free choices that people make? Does God determine the free choices that people make? How does God's influence relate to the presence of evil and suffering in this world? If He is heavily involved in this world, then we must admit it's a world with all kinds of suffering and trial. What part does God have in that? Let's sharpen the point a bit. January 26, 2001. An earthquake rocked the state of Gujarat in northwest India. Tens of thousands of people lost their lives. Others lay buried for days. Whole villages were left without a single inhabitable building. And cold weather left suddenly homeless people huddled around fires, makeshift fires, night after night, waiting for aid to come. The quake struck on Republic Day the foremost Indian holiday on which the country celebrates her independence. So let's go to one scene in this tragic event. 700 children waving flags are marching down a street in joyous celebration of Republic Day. And in a moment of time, they are buried in the rubble of the buildings that were standing on either side of that street. What does God have to do with that? Does God have nothing to do with such tragedy as many claim? Does God have something to do with such an event? Or understood in the right sense, does God have everything to do with such a tragedy? We must answer. Where is God? What influence does He exert in this world when there is an earthquake that claims the lives of children? Where is God in an armed robbery? Where is God in a fatal accident? Where is He when I lose my job? Where is God when I choose to sin? Or when someone else chooses to sin against me? What is God's influence upon a droplet of water that wiggles its way down a window pane? Does God have nothing to do with these things? Something to do with some of these things? Or understood in the right way, does He have everything to do with all of them? Well, the biblical answer to these questions will emerge over several weeks, God willing. Today we simply have time to understand one of two major aspects of divine providence, and that is the concept of God's preservation. We cannot answer these questions specifically today, but we will have no answer to them if we do not understand God's preserving power in this world. To understand the concept of God's preservation, we must first understand God's originating work of creation. As we consider God's influence in this world, His continuing influence, we must consider first God's originating work of creation. Genesis 1.1 
We may not need to turn. Can we quote it together? I think even with all versions of English Scripture, we can say this one together. Let's try it in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is anxious that we know from the outset that He is our Creator. We think of this. This is the first words of Scripture. Of all that God has chosen to reveal about Himself, this truth opens written revelation. In the beginning, God creates. Neither here in Genesis 1.1, nor anywhere else in Scripture, is there even a hint that God created out of necessity. Revelation 4.11 would also support that point. He was entirely free to create. He was entirely free not to create. He chose to do so. He was not pressed to do so. As Genesis 1 and 2 works itself out, we learn that creation does not emanate from God as one with Him. Rather, God is entirely distinct from His creation, which He created. Chapter 1, verse 31, what does it say? Very good. He created this world very good. By hallowing the seventh day on which God made nothing then, chapter 2 of Genesis, He demonstrates that creation was designed to worship and glorify Him. He does not hallow the day in which He makes Adam and Eve. He does not hallow some other day, such as the first day on which He made light. He hallows the seventh day on which He makes nothing. Which is to say, He sets up the world that it might worship and glorify Him as the highest entity as the greatest good, as the ultimate pleasure. It says then that God created for a purpose. We find that purpose throughout Scripture. Psalm 19 and verse 1, Why did God create? The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Romans 1 and verse 20, God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived in the things that have been made. He created for a purpose that we might see His glory. That He might announce the wonder of His being and His wisdom and His grace. As Romans 11.36 summarizes it, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Let's note Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 as we add one more significant piece to the creative account. It helps us understand how to read that account. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 as we think of God's originating work. This also is crucial. Hebrews 11 and verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God's continuing relationship to the world that He created is not a relationship in which that world is part of Him. It's not a relationship in which He owed something to created matter and simply worked with what was. But in His power and in His glory, God creates everything that exists out of nothing. Everything, then, 
owes its existence to Him. Not using pre-existing material, speaking the world into existence. All of this indicates that God created the universe to fulfill His purpose. Nothing pressed Him to it. We will look in greater detail at that concept, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. What is God's purpose in creating? But we see the preliminary ideas here before us. And we can suffice it to say that as Creator, God is the originator, the designer, the sovereign Lord of the universe which He created for a purpose. As Ephesians 1 and verse 11 says, God works all things according to the purpose of His will works all things, this One who created all things out of nothing. So He is not only the designer of all that is, logically He is the One who decrees everything that comes to pass. If God created the universe out of nothing, if He was free not to create the universe, if He knew all that would come to pass when He created the universe, then by calling that world into existence, He rendered certain all that comes to pass. That might be logical. It's troubling. It might be logical, but is it biblical? Does the logic of Scripture and the reason of Scripture bear this out? Let me just point, and in some ways we're anticipating the future, but Psalm 139, let me just point out here the Psalm of David in which he makes this very personal. Is it true that making the universe out of nothing, freely, knowing all that will come to pass, that God thus ordains what comes to pass in time. King David would say of himself, that's certainly true with me. As he says in Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them. Every one of what? Every one of the days that were formed for me. When? When as yet there were none of them. This is poetic language. I don't think we need to press it literally as such. Basically what the psalmist is saying is every day of my life and every experience of my life was determined before I even was. That creates some problems. Our minds begin to rise up almost in rebellion to think of such a thing. What are we, robots? What about human freedom? Why pray? What part does sin have to do with it? On and on the questions begin to rise. But we need to allow Scripture to speak. David says, all of my days were written in your book before one of them took place. We will seek to work some of the tension out of these rather troubling thoughts in the weeks ahead by God's grace. But for now, let's consider God's originating work of creation, which permits us to walk into now the doctrine of divine providence in earnest. And that 
leads us to consider, secondly, God's continuing work of providence. So God originates the world by bringing it into existence by the word of His power. Does He continue to have an influence upon this world? God's continuing work of providence may be broken down into preservation and governance. He preserves the world and He governs it. We'll not be able to look at governance today at all other than just to think about it momentarily and passing here and there, but let's hone in on this distinct aspect of God's providence, and that is His preservation of this world. Preservation we find on a grand scale in Hebrews chapter 1. Just going to take you through a number of passages. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles if you're able to do that. Otherwise, just to listen as we go through various passages. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Ask yourself as we read through, what is the topic? What is the point that is here? Hebrews 1 and verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Visions, miracles, dreams, written text. God's influencing this world. He's in it. There's communication between the supernatural and the natural realms. But, verse 2, in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. He has revealed Himself by the living Word, Jesus Christ, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. We're on topic here, aren't we? The originating work of creation, carried out by Christ. Verse 3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature. And, notice this, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is preservation. He upholds the universe. The Greek word means to carry along. This word was used in describing that scene in Jesus' life where He talked to the paralytic and said, roll up your bedroll here and carry it home. He was to grab onto it, to make sure it didn't fall to the earth, and to take it home. That's the same word that is used here of Jesus upholding the universe. It is as if Jesus has this world in His hand, and He's walking forward with it. Now, the walking forward with it is one of the foreshadowings toward the area of governance. Holding it in His hand is preservation. He upholds the universe He created in His hands, so to speak. Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. We'll notice this same concept of preservation in the context of creation here. Colossians 1, verse 15. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is thus before all things, preeminent as the Creator. Notice the next phrase. And in Him all things hold together. There it is again. Jesus not only created the world, but is the cohesive force that holds creation together. He is the unifying band, one has said, which encompasses everything and holds it together. 
This is Christ. This is His continuing influence upon this world. Nehemiah 9 and verse 6. Nehemiah 9 and verse 6. Nehemiah says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Here it is again. God is Creator. Now notice preservation. Next. And you preserve all of them. The Hebrew word for preserve is sometimes translated, you give life to all of them. But if God is giving life to all of these things, He is thus preserving them, and the word can be translated preserve, and I think contextually that fits well here. He is preserving the life principle that He originally created. So just in these three passages, we find specific reference to preservation on a grand scale. He holds the world in His hand. Jesus is the cohesive force that holds everything together. Now we move to preservation on a narrow scale. Are we to conceive of God in a big way preserving the world? How involved is He in the intimate details of life? The Bible speaks here as well. We must understand that God preserves the universe not only through miraculous intervention, but on the most intimate level as well. Jesus taught us this, didn't He? Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Where Jesus taught His followers as He was talking about life and how we should deal with the trials that we face, He says, Matthew 6.25, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Notice what he says in 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Well, Jesus was obviously ignorant of science. He doesn't know how things work. And clearly we're not to understand that God dangles worms over the mouth of birds and drops them in with His hand. But ancient people didn't know how to describe these things, so they just said, God does it. We don't know how it happens, but God does it. Listen, we can be drawn in by such critique. Who said this? the Creator of the universe. He was there when the world was brought into being and He has no problem saying, My Father feeds them. He wrote every natural law. He holds the universe together. But He has no problem saying, My Father feeds the birds. Chapter 10 and verse 29. Chapter 10 verse 29. Similar reasoning Two sparrows are sold for a penny. About the cheapest thing that you can buy so that anyone, no matter how poor, could worship God on some level in the sacrificial system of Israel. These sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. 
He doesn't really fill in what that means, apart from your Father's will, apart from your Father seeing it happen. He doesn't need to because it's all of the above. That little sparrow is not going to fall to the ground without God knowing it. The One who preserves all things. We read of this in Psalm 104. Let's return there. Psalm 104. Beautiful psalm, obviously very poetic in its description, not meant to be a scientific sheet to study for a test. But notice how it speaks of the creative order. Psalm 104 and verse 5, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. That's preservation. He is holding it up in the palm of His hand. Setting it on foundations. Verse 10, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. Now He moves to the narrow scale. These these rivers flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. You cause plants to grow so that man may cultivate and eat. And wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. God, You do this. Again, is this just ancient rhetoric? People attributing to God what they cannot explain scientifically? Not at all. Meteorologists can explain how rain clouds form and drop moisture on the earth. And botanists can explain how photosynthesis and nutrients in the soil and rain combine to cause grass to grow. But our knowledge of scientific causes does not negate the ultimate cause of God behind these secondary causes. He is the Creator of these causes. He wrote these laws. And He makes the grass grow. God preserves the earth through natural means, but in the end, He is the one who does it. He waters the earth. He makes the grass grow. Book right before Job 37. Job had a stunning meeting with God. We will not have time, obviously, to look at what brought him to this place as he works his way there. To discern God's will for him and to understand the trials that he has faced. Job 37. comes before Job hears this answer. And it comes from the words of Elihu, but it's working its way toward the message of God. Preparing us for this great Creator and Sustainer. We read the words that He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter His lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world whether for correction or for His land or for love, He causes it to happen. And on some level, that's precisely what God will be saying to Job as the book closes off. 
whether for correction He may send the rain for that reason, or for His land, or for love, He causes it to happen. Clouds arise and tempests blow by order from His throne. We sang that today. Do we believe it? He causes the grass to grow. And for His own purposes, He sends the rain upon the earth. I think Jerry Bridges captures this well when he says, the so-called laws of nature are nothing more than the physical expression of the steady will of Christ who preserves everything and provides for this world. Now, we've just begun to scratch the surface of this investigation. As we study divine providence in a preliminary way, though, we begin to see how this vision of God's creative design and preserving power radically orient our lives and our focus. We live amidst unbelievers in this world who are, if I can say it, freaked out about this world. They're absolutely scared to death of ecological disaster, of nuclear holocaust. Something really bad's going to happen and we have to stop it. We've got to fix this earth. Now, understood, there's legitimate concerns. We can really muck up our earth. We can't do half of what we think we're doing, but we can cause trouble. We can pollute rivers and we can mess up our air and we can cause trouble and we need to exercise good stewardship of the planet where God has placed us as regents in this world. But listen, as God's children, we find rest in the truth that God is preserving our world every nanosecond. Christ will never take a break. It sits in His hand. He clutches it and He carries it forward. I have no fear. I have no confidence in man. I have no confidence in what we may do with this earth. But I have no fear that man is at the helm of the universe. God is. He has and He will preserve it right up until the end when He purifies it with fire. That's in His hands. And I can rest there. We live in a world of existentialists who speak of the absurdity of the world, of blind randomness, of the despair. We see a world that is ideally ordered and cradled in the arms of Christ. That has a lot to do with how you suffer. That has a lot to do with whether you choose to use drugs. That has a lot to do with how you treat other people. It's in His hand. We're cradled in His arms. He preserves us. We live in a world that preaches self-sufficiency. We walk around as the followers of Christ and we know that there is absolutely nothing that is self-sufficient but God. We're not worried about self-sufficiency. We don't have to pursue that dream. We know that God is good 
that He alone is self-sufficient and that everything and everyone, whether they know it or not, are wholly dependent upon the preserving power of Christ. And what hope and strength for the soul comes from knowing that the glue that holds the universe together is no impersonal chance force, but it is rather the all-powerful God who loves us as His people. This radically transforms the way I see the world in which I live. I've talked about it numerous times through the years, but I I watched this documentary that a scientist did, and the man literally, his job was to take a pad of paper and a pen and to walk out into the created order and to write down what he saw. This bug showed up on this day, and this tree blossomed on this day, and this type of tree the leaves started to fall off on this day and the weather was this and this and this all he did and he just showed this notepad after notepad writing out what he observed in this creative order and this evolutionist this secularist said as he walked around every day in this in nature he said at the conclusion of it all there is a internal clock and there is a force which binds it all together and gives it all order, we just have no idea what it is. I didn't know if I should laugh or weep. We go into this world and while we understand that God has written laws of nature, We know who that God is. We know the author of those laws. And He is the God who loves us and gives Himself for us. It is this God who sustains us through every experience of life. It is this God who holds the whole universe together, but who also is intimately concerned with how the grass grows. He knows when a bird falls. Do you think that has something to do with what He thinks about you and me in our trials, in our concerns, in our temptations? Christian, He is holding your life in His hands and He is preserving it. If He has given you life in Jesus Christ, your salvation is solid in Him. It is unmovable. It is unshakable. No power of hell will ever take you from Christ's hand. Ever. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if He's not your Lord, if He is not the one that you are trusting for your salvation, if you have no confidence that your sins are forgiven, He is pouring out His grace and mercy on your head every day. You have nothing without Him. But there is a day when that mercy will be withdrawn. And you must come to know this One who is the source of all goodness. To know this One who loves you. To know this One who has everything to do with everything. Let's bow for prayer. 
Our Father, we give thanks and praise to You for Your mercies. I pray that we would be faithful and fruitful in our deciphering of Your Word. I pray for this church that over these weeks ahead that You will steer us to understand who You are. That our knowledge would grow and deepen. That You would take us forward. For anyone who is separated from Christ, Father, make it clear to them that they do not know the source of their ultimate joy. The rescue of their souls. The sovereign Creator, Sustainer, and Author of life. I pray that You bring them to saving faith today. And that by Your mercies that You will move and enable us to respond in faith. Through Christ we pray. Amen.